0: We're looking at page 30 here uh, in our notes, and uh, let's see here. I am going to uh, mute all of you now for a second here. And <clears throat> we're looking at page 30. Let's just review again this where we're at. Remember, we said that Romans uh, can be divided up into two major doctrines. We are united with Christ, means we're saved. And the two major doctrines are justification and sanctification. And we're looking at chapters 1 through 4, the doctrine of justification is what we are concerned about. Uh, When we get to chapter 5, verse 1, Paul will say, since we have been justified by faith. He's summarizing chapters 1 through 4. So we know what that's about. And we said that really starts out in 118 and goes through the end of chapter 4. And we call it the revelation because Paul says the righteousness of God is being revealed in verse 17 as the gospel is presented, as it's proclaimed, then there is a revelation of the righteousness that comes from God. Uh, That's justification. We are declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. So Paul wants to instruct us about this doctrine of imputed righteousness, justification. But before he does, he's going to spend a lot of time, (laughs) all the time we've been discussing about the need for it. He wants us to, Explain to us that human beings need this righteousness because they are sinners. They are depraved sinners, and they're lost and undone. And so he wants to explain that, which he's been doing, and we're going to finish that. We're at the last two verses tonight. And uh, remember, he's explained first that Gentiles are condemned, and then he explains that Jews are condemned, there's no difference in matters of judgment. <clears throat> They're both equally condemned before God. And he summarizes in 3, 9 through 20, uh, all mankind is condemned. That's the section we're on now. So he just kind of summarized everything, and he has started verse 9 with a charge of universal condemnation. Remember he said... What we shall conclude then? What shall we conclude? Do we have any advantage? we Jews? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. So there's our problem. You and I come into this world, and because we come from Adam, we inherit uh, that sinful nature. We're guilty before God, and we sin actively. We're under the power and dominion of sin. And he has told us in 10th reading, this is proven by universal corruption. So he had a long list of verses there where he showed that Jews and uh, that 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 if you look at those Old Testament verses, it talks about mankind as being corrupt in his character and in his actions, his speech, his thoughts, uh, everything about him is corrupt. Now in verses 19 through 20, he wants to apply that to the Jews. Uh, and here's what I say: uh, The Jew might object that the scriptures just quoted by Paul were originally spoken of the Gentiles. That is, those passages in the Old Testament were sort of describing people outside of the uh, outside of God's grace and outside of uh, knowing anything about God, describing actions that were mainly Gentiles. But Paul, in verses 19 through 20, denies their plea and affirms that the operation of the law, Scripture is such that their guilt, as well as that of the Gentiles, is clear. So let's look at that. Verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. So I see here, first Paul says that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, literally in the realm of, or the authority of the law. So this first occurrence of the law refers to the passages quoted above, scripture. For we know whatever the scripture says, it says to those who are under the law, that is under the Mosaic law. So as I said, those passages, if we went back and looked at 10 through 18, they seem to describe mostly pagans who have no uh, relationship to Israel or the law. But the point Paul is making here is that those things that are condemned are, first of all, written to the Jews. If it's wrong for pagans, it's wrong for everybody. And uh, everything in the Old Testament, including those things said about Gentiles, are applicable to the Jews. It's intended for their instruction. It's in their Bible. And they have to observe it. They have to say, hey, these are wrong things. They should accept them as as applying to them. Does this, you know, I'm not above this kind of thing, these sins. I say, second, what the law says is intended to silence every mouth and bring the entire world under God's judgment. Law, to be sure, lies heaviest on Israel because it was given to them, particularly. It binds the whole world, it shuts every mouth. Therefore, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. By doing the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This verse, I say, confirms the accountability of all people to God. Paul counters any Jewish evasion of verse 19 by denying that the law can offer any hope of defense. Remember we talked about how last week that many passages in the Jewish writings in the Mishnah, the Talmud, and other writings and apocryphal writings of Jews seem to suggest that the mere possession of the law by Jews gave them a right status before God. And that's not true. So works of the law, I say, equals anything done in obedience to the law, particularly those good works that a person seeks to perform in order to be accepted in God's sight. Works of the law was used eight times by Paul, For Paul, works the law is equivalent to the simple works in Romans 4, 2 and 4, 6. So sometimes Paul talks about works of the law, but sometimes he just talks about works. He says like Romans 4, 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God, but Romans 4, 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessings, the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So I say here, when Paul uses the phrase works the law, Instead of the simple works, that is a person can't be justified by works of the law, they can't be justified by works, period. When he uses works of the law, he does so because he is principally concerned in this context to deny to the Jews an escape from the general sentence pronounced in verse 19. But because works of the law are what we might call good works defined in Jewish terms, the principle has universal application. The point here is nothing that a person does, faith is not something a person does, as we'll see, it's a gift of God, but nothing that a person does, uh, whatever the object of their obedience or motivation of that uh, obedience can bring him or her in favor with God. Good works just won't do it. Now, of course, that flies in the face, of what most people living in America believe. Most people who have any religious ideas at all think, if they're not really born again Christians, think that you know, good works is what's gonna do it for me. Uh, and many quote, Christian religions like Roman Catholicism teach that exact thing. But Paul denies that here. No one, will be declared righteous by works, or works of the law. So the, the heart of Paul's contention here in this particular section is that no one is capable of doing anything, any works, that will gain acceptance with God. Uh, that's why, for everyone, the only way is faith in Christ. That's the only possible way to God. Now, Paul doesn't tell us here why works don't work. <laughs> why works don't justify. But as we've seen in the overall context, uh, Paul says, remember in 2.13, he says, those who obey the law will be justified. And in 3.9, he says, we're all under the power of sin. Uh, So the problem here is that works can't justify, works of the law can't justify, because no one is able to do those works sufficiently well to gain favor with God. There's the problem. No one can do works, can work well enough. It really takes perfect works. Now, there was a man who did do perfect works. (laughs) That was Jesus. (laughs) But he's the only one who's ever worked perfectly and fulfilled the law perfectly. So the problem here is that No one can do the work sufficiently to gain favor with God. Even Roman Catholicism sort of recognizes this in their system of salvation because they believe in justification by faith plus works. But basically, they realize that in this life, no one really does it well enough. So now there are exceptions, saints, you know. But uh, for the most part, everybody is going to have to go to purgatory and uh, and be punished for their sins because you can't do enough good works to justify getting into heaven. So in the last part of verse 20, uh, Paul supports his contention in the first part by setting forth what the law does as opposed to what it cannot do, what it cannot accomplish. The law doesn't justify, or he says, rather, Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So the law does not provide the ability to conquer sin, but simply reveals its presence. When we match ourselves up against God's law, we come short. For all have sinned and come short, we'll see. So what the Mosaic law does is set forth God's will in great detail it makes absolutely clear that it's the living God with whom we deal and whom we sin against. The law gives to to people, all people an understanding of sin as a power that holds them in bondage and brings guilt and condemnation. So the law is not the way to be justified. It makes us conscious of sin. And Paul will repeat that idea throughout. Well, we finally got here. You know, we said that chapter, uh, beginning in chapter, verse 17, Paul says, therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. But it, he hasn't explained to us how this righteousness is comes to us in the gospel. We've talked about it, but he's only been talking about why we need it. What's the problem? We are depraved sinners under the power of sin. Now he's finally, so we finally get to the gospel. Everything we've had so far is preparation for the gospel. Now we get to the good news, the manifestation of the righteousness that is from God. I say here, Romans 118 through 22 has set the stage for Paul's main point in this section of the letter, which is the availability of God's righteousness to all who respond in faith. This is the good news of the gospel that was first announced back in 117. God's saving purposes have not been fulfilled by deserving the law. For as Paul has charged, both Jews and Gentiles are all under the power of sin. Therefore, no one can obey the law sufficiently to be justified. The problem is not with the law, but with human inability, the result of depravity. But as we will learn, God has fulfilled his saving promises through the death of Jesus Christ. Salvation is now available to both Jew and Gentile through faith in Christ. So here he's going to explain now. How does this righteousness come to us? How do we get this? How do we obtain this? Well, first he says, it's apart from the law. But now, apart from the law, the Mosaic law, the legal system, the righteousness of god has been made known to which the law and prophets that is scripture testify i say the opening words of verse 21 pick up the thought introduced at verse 17 for in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed and repeated in a slightly altered form but now apart from the law the righteousness of god has been made known The word but marks the contrast between the revelation of the wrath of God, 118, and the manifestation of a righteousness from God. The adverb now is to be interpreted temporally. But now indicates the transition from the old era of sin's domination to the new era of salvation between the old covenant and the new, a transition affected in history at the cross and in the life of individuals like us at our conversion, as the wrath of God dominated the old era, so the righteousness of God dominates this new era. The righteousness of God means the same thing here as it did in Romans one seventeen The justifying activity of God. The relationship of this righteousness of God of the Old Testament is now indicated with two prepositional phrases: it's apart from the law, and yet at the same time, the law and the prophets testify to it. so the first apart from the law, should be taken with the verb. A righteousness from God has been made known apart from the law. And of course, as I said, apart from the law means apart from the Mosaic legal system. Justification, being saved, has always been by faith. But that truth was not made known in the Mosaic legal system. However, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament as a whole, anticipates and predicts this new work of God. Paul's great example, as we'll see in chapter four, is Abraham. That's in the law. That's in the, Moses, that's in the scriptures, the, the Torah, when he says it's, it, it's uh, made known by the law. It come, it's anticipated in the law. That's Genesis, Abraham. And the great text there, Genesis 1.17, Abraham believed God and so forth. And in the prophets, Habakkuk 2.4, which he had in Romans 1.17. The Old Testament promised a new covenant. So let's talk about that. Jeremiah said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband of them declares the Lord this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people so here's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant we're under the new covenant the old covenant with Israel did not promise or guarantee regeneration, being born again. So the Mosaic legal system was given to Israel as a nation to govern them as a nation, civil, uh, ceremonial, uh, moral laws. But just because you're part of the old covenant, just because you're a male is circumcised and you're children of Abraham, that didn't guarantee regeneration one still had to have faith and trust in God and be regenerated. But in the new covenant, which we're under, everybody in the new covenant is born again. That's part of the covenant. That's part of what God does in this covenant. So if we looked at salvation, for instance, uh, in the old covenant and the new covenant, we might say the Old Testament, and the New Testament. <laughs> so people in the Old Testament and people in the New Testament are saved really the same way. There's not two ways of salvation. Uh, so let's look at these different things. When we talk about the basis of salvation, what, what, what is the salvation of Abraham or Adam, if he trusted God, and uh, Jacob, what, what is the basis of their salvation? It's the death of Christ. Everybody who has in heaven or will be in heaven is there because Christ died for their sins. Now, as we'll see when we get just a further along here, uh, those who were saved before the death of Christ were saved sort of on credit. We'll kind of see that. But uh, the death of Christ is the basis, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, for salvation. We talk about the instrument. Some talk about the means. How does this come to us? What is the instrument that brings the benefits of the death of Christ to us? Faith. So people in the Old Testament were saved by faith. We'll see that from Abraham chapter 4, David. And we're saved by faith. So anybody who's ever been saved has been saved through the instrument of faith. What's different over time is what we might call the content of what a person had to believe. So over time, God has revealed more and more about salvation and the plan of salvation. So in the Garden of Eden, the first revelation was Genesis 3.15 when God told Adam and Eve, listen, I'm going to ultimately undo what Satan has done. You've been tempted. You're, now we've had the fall. Mankind is under condemnation, but I'm going to undo that because there's coming one, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to undo what Satan has done here. And then over time, more and more is revealed to the Old Testament characters. We read about Abraham and then the law of the Moses and the prophets and so forth. And so a person in the Old Testament, <clears throat> they were saved by faith in God, in the promises, in the truth that God revealed. So by trusting God, believing him, believing his promises, they were saved and regenerated just like we are. Now, once we get, once we get to the death and resurrection of Christ, then the the content does not change. It doesn't vary. So people were were saved in, you know, AD 30, the same way we're saved. That is the content's the same, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? Uh, Everybody's saved based upon believing the message that Christ died for our sins. He was raised and so forth. But all of that content was not available at first to Adam. Adam didn't know all the details about, the death of Christ and the, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. But today, uh, that's what we tell people. That's what people have to believe. That's the, the content of the gospel. But people were saved the same on the same basis, the death of Christ. All right. It's apart from the law, and it's through faith in Christ, Paul says. That is this righteousness, this justification. He says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. I say the righteousness of God is now considered from the human side of the transaction. That is, people come to experience the righteousness from God. That is justification through faith in Christ. I say faith is not something we accomplish. Faith is not self-centered, but Christ-centered. Faith is not a virtue we accomplish. It's not a good work. We are not saved by faith. That is not because of faith, but by Christ. Now, it's a little tricky here because the preposition by can mean different things. We commonly say we're saved by faith. We understand that to mean by means of faith. The instrument is faith. But I'm just emphasizing here, it's not our faith that saves us. It's Christ that saves us. You know, it's not... It's not the faith itself that's somehow meritorious. Our faith is, doesn't merit anything. Our faith is given to us as a gift of God. So we're not saved because we have faith. Uh, one, one person who has faith is not better than the person who doesn't. That is, somehow they worked up this faith. It's not meritorious. It's a gift of God. We're saved technically because of what Christ did. Faith is the instrument or the means. Faith must always be talked about as to its object. Faith is that which looks to Christ, trust in Christ. Faith just puts us in touch with Christ who saves us. Faith is the means or instrument created in our hearts by God, yet which we truly exercise. That brings us to Christ. We truly do believe. We truly do exercise faith. We trust, but it's the work of God in us. The addition of the words to all who believe is intended to emphasize that faith righteousness is effective for all believers. Thus the words through faith in Jesus Christ emphasize that it's only through faith that divine righteousness is attainable, while to all who believe emphasize that this righteousness is always operative where there is faith regardless of whom the believing person is. So Paul's point here is to highlight the universal universal. Uh, availability of God's righteousness. Uh, That this is the force of these words is concerned by the statement that follows. He says, there is no difference. That is, there's no difference in the method of salvation between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as we'll see. So this means that the means of justification is the same for all, Jew and Gentile, Because the need is the same for all. Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. We all stand bankrupt before God with no righteousness to commend us, none of our own righteousness. So he says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this verse elaborates the last part of verse 22. There is no difference. Have sin sums up the entire history of the race and expresses a consequence. And so, fall short emphasizes the present and continuing effect of sin in the lives of people. They habitually fall short of the glory of God. In this, this life, believers still fall short of God's glory until they are transformed by God at the rapture or death. Romans 8:18. 8, Paul says, I consider that our present suffering. Not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So this sharing God's glory involves conformity to the image of Christ. He'll say, Paul will say in Romans 8 29, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He says in Philippians 3 21 that God will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. So it's apart from the law, it's through faith, and it's a gift. And all are justified freely by his grace. The word justify, we've talked a lot. I'm just repeating what we discussed earlier some weeks ago. Is a forensic or legal term with the meaning acquit. It is the normal word to use when the accused is declared not guilty. It means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. It's the opposite of condemn. To condemn does not mean to make wicked, but to declare guilty. Similarly, to justify means to declare just. To be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of their sins. The gratuitous nature of justification is brought out in two expressions, freely and by his grace. Freely means at no cost. That is no cost to the believer. By his grace adds emphasis to the thought. Grace denotes undeserved favor. It's made possible by the death of Christ. Verse 24a has declared that our justification comes at no cost to us. The present passage shows that it was procured at great cost to God, namely the death of his his own son. So we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The death of Christ is represented in these verses, 24, 25, 26, the latter part of 24, using three figures, three metaphors, redemption, propitiation, and vindication. The first of these is stated in 24b, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The root meaning of the Greek word for redemption is a releasing brought about by the payment of of a price or a ransom. It denotes the act of buying out of slavery. So this is a word that was used, you redeem a slave, you buy them out. So we commonly use it as a synonym for salvation, but salvation is really the broader term that includes justification and sanctification. We say we, we can say we're saved or redeemed, but redeemed specifically has an emphasis on the fact that we were purchased or bought out of slavery to sin. Uh, Christ's death was a ransom or payment that paid the penalty for sins uh, owed by sinners to God. So we were in slavery to sin. Uh, Remember 3.9 says we were under the power of sin. So one aspect of our salvation is that we have been Uh, redeemed, purchased, bought, so we're no longer under the power of sin. We're not under the power of sin. We're not under the dominion of sin. And Paul's going to elaborate a lot of that in chapter 6. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, see, there's the unsaved condition. You used to be. You've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. There's only two kinds of people in this world, two kinds. Those who are slaves to sin and those who are slaves to righteousness. Now, slaves to righteousness doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means the basic uh, mindset, our basic inclination is toward righteousness because God is working in us. The Spirit is in us. Romans six fourteen: for sin shall no longer be your master, That's what it was in our unsaved condition. We're under the power of sin. Because you're not under law, but under grace. So we'll see here that under law is a way of sort of expressing the condition of people under the law, trying to observe the law, trying to keep the law. That's a useless proposition. They'll never work. We need grace. We need the imputed righteousness of Christ. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Second, the death of Christ is represented in terms of a propitiation. Uh, The NIV translates it, sacrifice of atonement. Uh, Propitiation is a little difficult word. They're trying to help us here, but uh, commonly the word has been God presented Christ as a propitiation. That word means the removal of wrath, that uh, he presented him as someone to propitiate, to remove wrath. I say in secular Greek, the word and its cognates often referred to various means by which the wrath of the gods could be propitiated. Thus, a sacrifice was generally offered to turn away the wrath of a god. Now, wrath is not an attribute of God. Wrath is is something that God uh, possesses because of our sin, because of human sin. Remember Romans 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, another aspect of Christ's death, redemption is one of them. He redeems us out of the slave market of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. He also propitiates, removes, that we're no longer under God's wrath. Now, Uh, liberal Christianity. I keep talking about liberal Christianity. Remember, over the years, unfortunately, um, particularly in the late 18th century and the early 19th century, uh, Christians, many Christian denominations, moved away from the truth of the gospel. They're no longer evangelical. They don't hold to the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the Virgin Birth of Christ. So, liberalism—they called it modernism back then—captured has captured many of the denominations. For instance, one denomination is the PCUSA, PCUSA, uh, the Presbyterian Church in the USA. Now, at one time in America, there was just one Presbyterian denomination, but over the years, that split just like Baptist. <laughs> have split, there's been a lot of different denominations. And in these denominations, there are some conservative Presbyterians in some denominations, say, for instance, a conservative denomination of Presbyterians is the PCA. So don't get PCA confused with PCUSA. <laughs> PCA is the Presbyterian Church in America. That's a conservative Presbyterian Association of Churches denomination. The PCUSA is the liberal group, and you see that by what they do. So in 2014, for instance, I'll give an example, they wanted to include the song In Christ Alone by Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend. Now, we sing that song a lot at CBC, In Christ Alone, one of our our, favorite hymns here at CBC and a lot of other churches. Well, in 2014, they were producing a new hymnal and they wanted to include this song in Christ Along in their hymnal because it was being sung in their churches. A lot of their churches were already singing it, you know, as a new song and so forth. But they couldn't abide by this line from the third stanza. The line that says, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They couldn't handle that. They didn't like that till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. <clears throat> because the wrath of God suggests God is angry with sin and we need, you know, some sort of substitute for sin. They didn't like that. They wanted to change it to substitute um, They wanted to substitute till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So a characteristic of liberal denominations is they don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They believe his death just displays the love of God was magnified. Now congratulate the authors here, you know, the Gettys and Townsend. They wouldn't allow them to change it. You know, it could have meant a lot of money for them, (laughs) If they had to put the hymn, if they could have changed the hymn, put it in their hymnals, they said, "No, you can't change. You can't change this thing." And so the Presbyterian Church, USA voted not to include uh, this hymn among the 800 hymns that they did include. So this concept of a propiti- propitiation, that the wrath of God had to be satisfied. that suggests that we are sinners and under the power of sin. And that is not something that many so-called Christians will accept. I say third, the propitiatory death of Christ is represented as a vindication. He says to demonstrate in this verse his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. I say the idea is that God is demonstrating his righteousness in Christ, because he had passed over sins committed in the past, that is, before Christ. The general sense is that the death of Christ served to vindicate God's past dealings with the sins of the race. So the neglect of prosecution on God's part doesn't mean he failed to punish sins committed before Christ. Um, It doesn't mean that God did not really forgive sins under the old covenant. He allowed people like Abraham to go to heaven. He allowed people like David to stand before him, to go to heaven. He allowed all those Old Testament saints to go to heaven even though Christ hadn't died, but of course Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So that's what we're talking about here. This the death of Christ vindicated the fact that God was declaring people righteous and bringing them into heaven, even though Christ hadn't died. So bringing them into heaven calls them to question God's conduct, and so God was sort of saving them on credit, as I said, based on the fact that eventually Christ would come in time and pay for the sins of all these people in heaven, as well as ours. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Paul now resumes the topic of the demonstration of God's righteousness and adds the important point that this demonstration has significance not only for the past, but also for the present era. So the justice of God was partially obscured in uh, previous ages but now it's been clarified it's been manifested and exhibited this justice that god is just the last part of verse 26 gathers into a statement the two purposes the preceding verses have given for the setting forth of christ as a propitiation that god might be just remain just while at the same time justifying those who have faith in Christ. So it's the, it's the propitiatory, propitiatory, propitiatory death of Christ that makes possible this justification of you and I as sinners without compromising the moral character of God. God can still be just. He's still morally right because no sin goes unpunished. God is a just God, cannot just say, wave his hand and say, okay, I forget about that sin. No, God, God's moral character cannot do that. Sin must be punished, and it was punished in Christ. So God wouldn't be just in remitting sins unless some account were taken of it. He says in 327 through 31 now, finally, it excludes all glory. Beginning now and continuing through 425, Paul concentrates on the vital theme of verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is now the topic of every paragraph of this section of the letter. Uh, The emphasis is upon faith as the sole instrument of justification. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law, what principle? The law, the principle that requires works? No, because of the law, the principle that requires faith. So I say in these verses, the the word law is the idea of that of a principle, like the principle or law of gravity. Paul begins by showing how justification by faith excludes any possibility of boasting on the part of the Jews. This boasting stems from the Jews' tendency to take pride in their accomplishment, to think that their obedience to the law constituted some kind of claim on God. Of course, Paul rejects that. There's nothing at all with observing the law, according to Paul. The the problem here is observing the law, uh, and observing the law, is when you observe the law, it's regarded as an achievement on the basis of which a relationship with God is established or maintained. That's true for us, too. We want to obey God. God wants us to obey him. But that's not some sort of achievement that gains us entrance into heaven. The only thing that gains us entrance into heaven is the righteousness of Christ, not our righteousness. So it's wrong to boast because justification can only come through faith. It requires faith. Verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now Paul explains with the word for the principle of faith, that justification can only come by faith is the rule pertaining to faith. No works, no matter what kind or what motivation can play a part in making a sinner, making us right with God. Um, Paul is denying that anything a human being does can ever justify one before God. Verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, excuse me, Paul adds another argument in support of justification by faith. He argues that the truth of justification by faith puts Jews and Gentiles on the same footing before God. Paul uses monotheism, one of the Jews' cardinal beliefs, to argue against justification by a means of observing the law. Since all the Jews believe that there's only one God, he obviously must be the God of Jews and Gentiles. Otherwise, Gentiles would be left with no God. And since there's only one God to whom all people are responsible, they all must have equal access to God. And this can only be guaranteed if it's by faith, not works and obedience to the Jewish law. Only if it's by faith is salvation possible for all people. Verse 20, 30, 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. That's quite a statement. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? No, not at all. We uphold the law. Finally, Paul answers a natural objection natural objection to this doctrine of justification by faith, apart from the law, which is, doesn't Paul's view nullify the law? Paul says, not at all. But in what sense is the law as a body of commands established, upheld? Paul is thinking of the way in which our faith in Christ provides for the full satisfaction of the demands of the law. He's thinking here, though he's not explaining, what he's going to say in Romans 8, chapters, uh, verses 3 and 4. He says there, For what the law was powerless to do, law couldn't justify us, because it was weakened by the flesh. No one, because we're under the dominion of sin, the power of sin, we can't do the law sufficiently. We can't be obedient sufficiently. So, what the law was powerless to do because of our depravity, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Right? He was not sinful, but in the likeness to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that righteousness the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, so the stress on faith as establishing a law suggests that it is it is law as fulfilled in and through our faith in Christ that Paul thinks of here, so the law was unable to do this; God sent his son that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who have faith in Jesus Christ. So our relationship to Christ by faith fully meets the demands of the law. The 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 commands of the law are upheld by the Christian because we are in Christ. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. So the demands of law are fulfilled by Christ, and we are in Christ. That's the only way we can be saved. It doesn't say here that, uh, that we, uh, uh, it doesn't say in Romans chapter 8 that we do the law, it's fulfilled, it's fully met in us. The word is actually fulfilled, the NIV says, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So, What's required by the law, perfect righteousness, is fully met, are fulfilled in us because we are in Christ. And Christ, God looks at us and says, yes, Bill Combs, you have fully met the demands of the law because of Christ, because Christ has done that for you. All right. Let's look a little further here into chapter 4 now the example of Abraham as proof that the righteousness that comes from God, that this justification is by faith. That's the big problem because Jews universally in Paul's day thought that justification came by keeping the law. This is, why, this is what changed Martin Luther's life because he saw the situation with the Jews the same way he saw the situation in the Roman Catholic Church that they thought that by doing the keeping the sacraments observing the sacraments uh, all the things the church requires that you could become righteous In fact, that's what the Roman Catholic Church believes they deny vehemently this doctrine of imputed righteousness. The only righteousness that you have in the Roman Catholic Church is your own righteousness. The righteousness that you build up, that's infused in you. They deny any imputed righteousness. That's the, that's the dividing line of the Reformation, Luther called it alien righteousness. He discovered this from studying Romans, that instead of trying to produce his own righteousness sufficient, he said, I can't do that. Oh, it's, it's the righteousness of Christ. And it comes by faith, not by works. And so he's going to use Abraham as an example. In this chapter, Paul appeals to Abraham to support his insistence that righteousness can be obtained only through faith. To accomplish these purposes, Paul expounds Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, counted, imputed to him as righteousness. But the question naturally arises as to why Paul singles out Abraham to confirm and expand upon his doctrine of justification by faith, probably because of the high esteem in which he was held in Jewish writings. Abraham was revered by the Jews as their father, Isaiah. Also, that's a reference in the Mishnah uh, Jewish writings. And his life and character were held up as models of God's ways with his people of true piety. So, quote, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. This is uh, an apocryphal writing of the Jews, Jubilees. Abraham did not sin against thee. The prayer of Manasseh, that's one of the apocrypha. (laughs) So this is how they believed about Abraham. Abraham did not sin against thee. Uh, Well, we know that's not true. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds. We know that's not, but that's that's, that's, that's how they looked upon Abraham. No one has been found like him in glory. Now, in the Jewish writings, they even argue that Abraham obeyed the law perfectly before it was ever given. Now think about that. Abraham lived around uh, 2166, and the law was given 1440, you know, so 700 years. Abraham lived 700 years before Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai. But, but Jewish literature argues Abraham kept the law perfectly. Well, of course, that's not true, but there it is. He kept the law perfectly, so that's what, that's what we should try to do as Jews. So Paul naturally wants to show his readers in Rome uh, that this understanding of Abraham, which his you know, opponents probably cited against him, uh, was not in accord with the Old Testament. This is not what the Old Testament teaches about Abraham. Uh, So according to Paul's understanding of Genesis 15, 6 and Abraham, he's not an example of obedience to the law. He's an example of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So as a result, Abraham ceases to be the father of the Jews exclusively, but he's sort of the father of all who believe. He's at the headwater of all who believe. Well, four statements sum up the apostle's argument here. First, Abraham's justification is to be explained by faith, not by works. In verses 1 and 2, Paul denies that Abraham is any exception to the principle laid down in 327 through 28. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Paul introduces this matter with a question that perhaps is to be thought of as raised by an imaginary opponent of his doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul asks his readers to contemplate with him what Abraham has found to be the case with respect to matters he is discussing. And so if you look at what he said in 327, 331, and what he's going to say now, there's this parallel. Remember 327, 8, boasting is excluded. you will say Abraham cannot boast in 4, 1 through 2. 327, he said, because one is justified by faith, not by works of the law. Abraham was justified by faith, not. Verse 29 through 30, circumcised and uncircumcised, united under one God through faith. He'll say the same thing in 4, 9 through 17. Circumcised and uncircumcised are united as children of Abraham through faith. So when Paul calls Abraham our forefather according to flesh, he's referring to himself and other Jewish Christians. Paul will bring Gentiles into the picture here in verse 9. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 2 gives the reason behind Paul's general question about Abraham's experience in verse 1. We could, the flow of thought, we can kind of paraphrase. What shall we say about Abraham? For if we say he was justified by works, he has reason to boast. He has reason to boast. And my claim in verses 27 through 28 that all boasting is excluded is called into question. Yeah, if he justified by works, he could boast. But Paul rejects this possibility with a clause, but not before God. The point of verse two is that Abraham has a reason to boast if his righteousness before God were based on works, as some Jews argued. I read you some citations there. Uh, If Abraham were able to do the required works to merit justification, his boasting would be entirely appropriate. However, Abraham's problem was that he, like all others, failed to keep the law sufficiently to be justified. Abraham's works may have been significant to the point that he would rightly boast before people, you know, but not before God. Paul's not dealing with the question of works being esteemed by other people, but the relationship of works to justification. And Abraham did not perform the works necessary to boast before God in the matter of justification. From God's perspective, Abraham had no right at all to boast because he was not and could not be justified by works. Verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, Paul's reason for his negative judgment at the end of verse two is now stated. He invites his readers to consider the scriptural teaching about Abraham's justification. The text that he cites and which becomes the reference point for the rest of this chapter, of course, is Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and is credited to him as righteousness. So, according to this text. God counted Abraham's faith as righteous. That is, Abraham was accounted a righteous, was accounted a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. Verse 4, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Next, Paul shows that the language Employed in Genesis fifteen six involves the principle of gratuitous, that is free, unearned justification. That is justification that is in no way based on human merit. So if a person does a piece of work, you know, as we know in common life, their pay is a matter of debt, not a gift of grace. When you get your paycheck, I used to work in the shipyard many years ago in Virginia, and the on Friday, the, the boss man would come around and give you your check, give you a check. Years, many years ago, they used to actually give cash. They would come around and give you your check, but no one I ever saw said, Oh, thank you for that. I, I don't deserve it. You know, they said, give it to me, man. I, I worked hard for this money and so forth. So when, when you work, it's, it's not a gift, but it's an obligation. But when one, you know, trust God, it's a matter of grace that their faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is saying that works have no part in justification because God's God's justification is is not earned, but it's given freely. God, I say, is a God of grace, a, a God who justifies the ungodly. People are not accepted into relationship with God because by their righteousness they have earned it. It is the ungodly person, the person who has no righteousness of his own, to plead his case. Whom God accepts. So we can't make any claim on God's attention. Uh, establishing with Him a relationship with God is a matter of His free gift and it has to be accepted humbly by faith. Let's close with verse six. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Finally, Paul shows that the principle of justification by faith exemplified in the experience of Abraham is reiterated and confirmed by the words of David. The quotation here is from Psalm 32. It's David's exclamation of joyful relief and the assurance of forgiveness. So this text also speaks of justification since it says, It's God who credits righteousness apart from works. So Abraham's justification is to be explained by faith, not by works. All right.